I will now read from Mark chapter 10 from verse 17 to verse 31. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you for your promise that your word never returns to you void. Lord, we ask you that you would prepare our hearts and that you would strengthen Sam as he delivers your word to us this morning. Lord, we pray that your word would go deep into our hearts and develop roots and grow and bring forth fruit. May we know you more and be transformed into the image 
of your son, Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Stefan. I want to invite the children, if they would like to join Miri in the back. They are welcome to do so. You'll continue the lesson that you began this morning. You'll have opportunities to take a craft home or a coloring sheet. And parents, you can use that to further discuss with your children the lesson for this morning. So the text this morning is often referred to as the story of the rich, young ruler. We'll get to the reason uh, that we uh, attribute these two things that we don't see in the text of Mark, whether he is rich or whether he was young or, or a ruler. But if I were to give this story another title... I would call it a true story about why good people are left out of God's kingdom. A true story of why good people are left out of God's kingdom. The first thing I want to walk into this morning. That was a hard one for me to get out. Couldn't have figure out how to tell you what I want to tell you. The first thing that I want to share with you this morning is that we're going to cover the story in two parts. So Stefan has looked uh, or read for us 17 to 31, but we want to take specifically just a look at verses 7 through 22, because the story is really in two parts. It's first a story of the interaction between Jesus and this man. And secondly, It's the interaction between Jesus and his disciples, trying to discuss what this means. I don't know if you saw that the disciples were astonished. They're astonished about what happened between Jesus and this man. And so we'll take a look in this this specific story. We'll cover part one today, verses 17 through 22, and we'll cover part two next week, verses 23 through 31. Now, The second thing I want to uh, also share with you is that this story is, in a sense, the second part of a larger whole, and that is, uh, Alex preached last week, but the week before, we looked at Jesus uh, and the story about the disciples were preventing the children from coming to Jesus, and Jesus rebukes them and says, let the little children come to me. But Jesus teaches a really important principle. So in 10.15, he says, Truly I say to you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In the story this week, we, in a sense, receive the opposite side of the story. Last week, Jesus is telling us that unless we receive the kingdom like a child, we will not enter it. And the story this week, and they're uh, meant to go together, is a story of a man who is looking to know what he can do to enter the kingdom. The main point that we want to walk away with today, as you read the text, then you certainly saw that this man runs up to Jesus, kneels down, but he leaves disheartened and sorrowful. 
And so we have the story of a man who, on an appearance, expressed the desire to enter the kingdom. Interesting that he walks away not having entered it. And we want to know why. So our object today is to try to answer this question, why? Why would a good man who kneels down in front of Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, walks away dejected and walks away without having entered the So let's begin unpacking this story between Jesus and the man. I first want to look at the man and his question. Let's focus first on verses 17 to 18. Let's read again. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, the picture we get is Jesus and his disciples are uh, literally, the bags are packed. They look like they're either uh, at the residence or at, at the place they're staying, ready to leave, or they're literally just getting on the road. And so Jesus and his disciples are uh, on a trip. We know that uh, from the previous sermons in Mark that very specifically where Jesus is making his way towards is Jerusalem for Passover, which is, in a sense, what we just celebrated. Jesus has uh, made a beeline for Jerusalem to be able to lay down his life for sin, And Jesus is uh, setting out on that journey. This man approaches him and it says, and he ran up and he knelt down before him and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let's first just look at the man. So the, the man runs up to Jesus in Luke, Luke calls him a ruler, meaning that he was probably uh, an official uh, or in some kind of council or, or in some type of court. So this was a man of position. This, this was uh, not just any follower. Uh, this was not just any man. We know that many people often approach Jesus, and many people often approach Jesus with, with immense needs. But this is a man who approaches Jesus not in a position where he has immense needs. This is a person of influence and power. This is a person uh, who, from a worldly perspective, is somebody that would be impressive. And so Luke tells us that he's a... Matthew tells us that he was young, and that's also not in this passage in Mark. And so... As the description of this man, one, we know he's very wealthy by this account. Two, we know he's very young. Three, we know he's quite influential. Whether he comes from a family of prominence, uh, which would probably be likely, right? This is not a society where you earned your place. Uh, you, You could start from the bottom and work your way up. So he's probably coming from a very influential family. From the text, we also see that He's relatively well-mannered. Not maybe relatively is not the word. He's very well-mannered. He approaches Jesus, and publicly, he gets on his knees. This is not a position you would normally take. And so this is a man who, uh, for his outward manner, we would say he has impeccable, uh, impeccable, Manners he has an, an impeccable sense of, of what is appropriate, 
uh, of, uh, of, we would say he takes a posture of humility. We can't really speak about his heart, but he certainly takes a posture of humility. And then he shows Jesus immense respect. And you notice how he's going to call Jesus. He says, good teacher. And we, we get the sense that as he sees Jesus, he, he runs up, he approaches, and he has an honest question. There's, there's a lot of intentionality. He has a, a, a sincere desire to be able to ask Jesus this question. I don't know if in your culture that people often try to make matches of men and women, but if there ever was a match, this would be the type of guy, mothers would be saying, you should marry so-and-so, or you need a guy like so-and-so, right? He's young, he's wealthy, he's impressive, he's well-mannered, he's influential. If you wanted to try to tick boxes, I don't know if you could tick more boxes than this gentleman. And by the way, the list will even grow. Now, so that is the man. Let's talk about how he approaches because he says something very interesting. He, he greets Jesus and he says, good teacher. As we read this from whatever cultural context you may be coming from, this doesn't seem so unusual, right? When we think of Jesus, well, Jesus was good. Jesus Savior. He was God himself. But for a Jew in this time and in this context, actually in the current event, not looking back, this was not only an unusual statement, it, was, it actually is a statement that verges on heresy. You might say, well, well why? Well, to the Jew, they knew that only God was good. And in fact, over and over again in the scriptures, in 1 Chronicles 16 and 2 Chronicles 5, Ezra chapter 3, and Psalm 18, I'll read you what all of these scriptures say. They say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his love fast or steadfast love endures forever. It's a refrain we see in scriptures over and over again. But who is the only one who is good? God. God is the only one who is good. And in Jewish thought, because God was so preeminently good, this term was never used of people. In fact, a rabbi wouldn't allow a disciple to call him good. This would be language that if this was said or, or used of another teacher besides Jesus, they would immediately say, don't call me good. That you, they would know. And I don't think many rabbis had to say, don't call me good. I think their life probably showed that they were human like everybody else. But this man runs up and he calls Jesus good. And it just creates an interesting question because Jesus doesn't let it slide. And we don't know, actually commentators aren't sure whether this man is trying to be flattering to Jesus or whether he is truly sincere. By the way that Jesus interacts with him, by the way that Jesus treats him, by the way that Jesus never rebukes him uh, when he is talking about this. We'll look and then further in the passage. He says he looks at him with love. 
It seems that this man was sincere, but Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. What Jesus seems to be saying here is, one, either this man is recognizing the fact that Jesus is God, which doesn't seem likely. Even his disciples, his own disciples, are wrestling with this idea of who is this man that we are following. So it doesn't seem likely that this man sees and understands this man, this teacher, this rabbi is God in the flesh. So he doesn't seem to be putting this man, I'm calling him good because I know he's God. And so is this flattery that's used of men? Well, Jesus is going to at least make a point, and it's really important for this passage, that he lets the man know only God is good. Mere men are not good. This will come back into play later in the passage. But so just make a mark that Jesus uh, hears his greeting, and he lets him know only God is good. Make sure you use your words carefully. Because the minute you begin to attribute a title or something that is only true of God to mere men, you're either pulling God down or you're bringing men up. So he, chooses, he tells him to choose his words carefully. Now, let's get to his question, because this is at the heart of what we're looking at this morning. What is his question? His question to Jesus is, while he's on his knees, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. So mark very well what he says. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe if we were to summarize this man's approach to Jesus or his theology, one, there is a God. Yeah, there's a God. Two, God has made eternal life available, right? He definitely understands that eternal life is there. Another word for eternal life, we would say, would be God's kingdom. After Jesus has died on the cross, we often refer to this as receiving salvation. But this man understands that there is an opportunity for him to enter into eternal life. The third thing he understands is that he can earn this eternal life by how he lives? That's his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So if we were just to very basically, and I would say simply, say, what did this man believe? There is a God, and he's a Jew, so he could say there is one God, right? Creator of heaven and earth. We would understand that he believes that there is something that can be entered, that God has a kingdom, and he is inviting for those, those who, who believe in him, trust in him, follow him to enter into that kingdom. And he understands that we enter that by the things we do. Is that clear to everybody? That basic working understanding of how this man approaches Jesus and what is in his mind. Now, this man is not alone in thinking this way. If I were to go a little bit deeper than just this rich young ruler, when we come to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at Jesus' time, and I would say the vast majority of the Jews, 
they all believed and understood that God gave them the law so that they might obey the law and in obeying the law receive eternal life. You could see this reflected in the Old Testament. Let me just read you two passages that might help you understand how this man thought and how the typical Jew thought about law, about how the law and obedience to the law moved you towards living a life that God blesses. And if God is blessing in your life, then surely you have also received eternal life. Let's look at Leviticus 18, verses 4 and 5. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5, and it says this, God is speaking to his people Israel, and he says, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. And listen to this. And if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So God is certainly revealing that he has given his people rules and statutes. He's certainly revealing that he wants them to walk in them. He's certainly revealing that his relationship with his people is that he is the Lord, the God, the sovereign one. And he's certainly revealing that his expectation is that they would keep his statutes and rules, and if somebody does, they will live by them. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20, says something similar. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 to 20, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and your length of days, that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. So you can see that when those who interpreted the Scriptures, the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, interpreted the Old Testament, how they might think and teach that the way to eternal life was by doing. It was by keeping the law. And if we understand this context, when this man ran up to Jesus, he was more than running up to Jesus because he knows what other rabbis teach concerning this. And he wants to know from Jesus, but Jesus, what do you say? Is there anything else to do besides keeping the law that will earn me heaven? Basically, he's wanting to make sure I know what all of the rabbis say and I know that personally I'm trying to keep the law. So he runs up to Jesus and he wants confirmation. He wants affirmation. Am I doing everything that's needed? Because if there's anything I'm not, I will gladly do it. I desire with all of my heart the singular goal of my life is I want to enter eternal life. And I would guess that the vast majority of us sitting in this room would agree that when we talk about our world in general, if they do believe in a God, 
they probably believe something very similar in theology to this young ruler. That if a God exists, that God has told us what is right and wrong, and by doing right, that one day when we die, what God will do is look at, have we been good or have we been bad? That's the basic, most logical understanding of how God works in our world. God exists. He wants us to do good. If we do good, we earn heaven. If we do bad, we earn hell. It only makes sense. Isn't that logical? The police don't go arresting good people and putting them in jail. The police arrest bad people and put them in jail. This is our working mentality of how we believe eternal life works. Now, let's continue on with the story. Let's keep moving. Because what we are about to see is that Jesus says, this isn't how eternal life works. So Jesus is going to answer this man in verse 19. In response to this man's question, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. By the commandments, he's speaking of the Ten Commandments that God has given to his people. And Jesus skips over what we might call the vertical commandments of a, the, the command to love God or to, to, to worship God, to have no other gods before him. And he goes straight to what we call the horizontal commandments. It's, it's the things between us and other people. So Jesus says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And here's the man's response. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. As we read this account, one thing we could uh, say uh, with, uh, with certainty, and that in this man's eyes, he has truly kept the commandments. Now, this, this phrase, I've kept them from my youth. We've mentioned this several times as we've been studying Mark, is that the age of 13 was critical. It was a milestone in the life uh, of a young Jewish boy. Uh, in, in a sense, it marks the time when he moves from uh, a, a boy into uh, a manhood that he's going to grow into. And we've often said that, that the spelling is different these days. We call it a bar mitzvah. But uh, in uh, the Old Testament, this is a bar mitzvah. And Bar always means son of, right? When you say Simon Bar Jonah, right? That's a biblical name. It means Simon, son of Jonah. So this boy, or this young ruler, at some point in time, he goes through the typical Jewish journey of now becoming 13, and he becomes a son of the commandment. It means he is now, in God's eyes, expected to keep the commands. And when Jesus asked him, has he murdered? That's just a... It's pretty simple, black and white. Did you or didn't you? I haven't. All right? How, do you steal? In his mind, I don't know what stealing is, right? So if we really talk about stealing being anything and everything we might take without the permission of others, uh, instead of just really large items, did you steal a car last night? Uh, if it goes to, did you even steal time from your employer by, by clocking out uh, and therefore earning wages, right? If we really get to... The, the details of what this looks like, the heart of the law, 
But on, on the general surface level, no, I don't steal. Commit adultery. Uh, we don't even know if he's married. So maybe he's like, I have not committed adultery. Uh, I, don't, I haven't had any improper sexual relationships. I don't bear false witness. I haven't lied. I haven't defrauded my brother. In fact, I've honored my mother and father. In his eyes, what we can see is this man genuinely thinks that he has kept every commandment that God has given to him. And so now he approaches Jesus and he wants to know what else. So by the way, I told you the list grows even longer. In addition to young, rich, well-mannered, add to it, pretty good guy. If there was a guy who's checking the boxes, right, this, this guy seems like he truly has a desire to do what the Lord has commanded. He generally wants to keep the law. He generally wants to be good. He generally wants to walk in God's ways. So that's his response. The man sincerely understands that he has kept the law. And in keeping the law, remember when he greeted Jesus as good, what you see, what is his opinion of himself? Whether he says it or not, he understands himself to be good. In fact, good enough for God. If we were in the context, or possibly if we knew him as a friend, I would, I would venture a guess that maybe we would even confirm along with others. If there's a good person, it's this guy. And it would appear that if he was looking for confirmation, if he was looking for eternal life, all Jesus had to say right now is, you've done everything you need to. Actually, you don't need to do anything else. But Jesus doesn't confirm his understanding or confirm the fact that he was good. Let's look at the surprise ending in uh, verses 21 and 22. Because the story does not end the way we would expect. In verse 21, it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And here is the response, and here's how the story ends. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus lets him walk away. If there ever was a candidate that you would say, pursue this guy, this is the guy that should be going to heaven, this is the guy that is good. I mean, if, if there was kind of like the model disciple that Jesus should be looking for, definitely wasn't the fisherman that he was hanging out with. It was this guy. Wealthy. And by the way, uh, just maybe to qualify something that might uh, not register in, in your mind as we hear about this. In the biblical context, and at the context of this time, to have wealth was viewed and seen and understood as the pleasure, the blessing of God. Because where else would you get wealth besides God himself? And over and over again, right, when we just read those passages from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy, what did it say? That when we live in God's ways, that God would bless his people. And so 
there's something that's staring us in the face that we might not see, and that's the fact that this man is extremely wealthy, and their minds would have, would have been a clear sign that this man is extremely blessed by God. God's favor is on this man. That's how his wealth would have been understood. And so Jesus allows this man, well-dressed, well-mannered, influential, young, right? A guy that you think, if, if this guy becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, imagine the influence, imagine the impact. And the end of the story is Jesus lets him walk away. Not, hey, 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 come back, come back, come back. Let me just t- talk to you a little bit more. So now I told you that the goal of our time today is to really unpack this why. So why does Jesus let him walk away? Well, we have a clue when Jesus looks at him in verse 21. And he says he looks at him and loved him. Have you ever loved somebody and recognized there's something that they need to hear, but you don't have the the confidence or the boldness to say it. You need to say something, somebody needs to hear something, something that they are blind to, but you, if you really love them, need to point it out and nobody else is doing it. It often happens with people of power and influence is that everybody else can see, but nobody says anything. Jesus looks at him and it says he loves him. And I I mentioned earlier, I believe this man is completely sincere. This is, is not fake. I believe with all of his heart, he generally thinks he wants to enter the kingdom. Jesus gives him no rebuke. He has no harsh words, but Jesus is going to do something that is going to point to the one thing that is actually preventing him from entering the kingdom. He thinks it's something he must do. And Jesus says it's something you've got to let go of, right? Because if you think about... Well, if, did Jesus not just give him one more thing to do? Basically, he says, okay, what, what good thing do I have to do? If Jesus says, okay, you've done all this, now just do one more thing. That's the secret key to entering the kingdom. Then Jesus would be preaching a gospel of doing. And we know he's not. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is, is gently pointing the finger at the one thing that this man is blind to that it is in his love for God, what he thinks to be his love for God, his desire for the kingdom, he actually does not love God himself. Is that he's fallen in love with the blessings of God, and his wealth is the one thing that keeps him from the kingdom. Now, just so you know, this is not prescriptive. Jesus is not saying here that it's very clear that anyone who wants to come to, to, into the kingdom must be unwealthy, must sell all they have. But we see a really clear principle that that I think can be implied to just about anyone, or not anyone, everyone in this room, is that if we come to Jesus, one thing we have to recognize as humans, we all hold on to something. Something that makes us feel good about ourselves, something that makes us feel justified about our good behavior, or something that we believe satisfies our hearts. It might not be something that we believe, like, I'm a really good person, I'm holding on to this, for, for many of us, it could be something else that we're holding on to. And here's what Jesus does. He basically looks at him and says, unless you're willing to put that down, you can't grasp onto the kingdom. You can't hold on to me if you're holding on to something else. 
And this is why the man walks away disappointed. Because Jesus doesn't tell him to do one more thing. He says, here, if I'm going to speak honestly with you, here is why you cannot enter the kingdom right now. Because you don't love me. You love your wealth. And Jesus shows him that by telling him to go and sell all he has. Is, is this the command that everyone who wants to enter the kingdom needs to go through? No. But I will tell you, every single person, and Alex mentioned this earlier, if you're going to come to Jesus, you're going to have to lay all that you're holding on to down if you're going to hold on to Jesus. Jesus never, never lowers the bar. In fact, one of the things that is amazing about Jesus' leadership is many, many leaders are so desperate for followers that they will take anyone who shows an interest. Because when people follow them, it, it, it makes them believe, it feeds their self-ego. What happens when you have a man who has no self-ego and is simply willing to tell you the truth? That's a dangerous man. And he's going to invite you to a high and holy calling. Jesus never compromises what it looks like to follow him. Not for the rich, not for the wealthy. And he speaks the truth in love and he never softens what it will actually call or cost to follow him. That's a leader that you want to follow. That's a God that, that it, you want to believe in. A God who will not change for you. A God who invites you to change so that you might receive him. He invites you, actually, not to change, like give up sin. He invites you to be willing to lay down your life so that you might pick up his. Jesus reveals three things about this man. One, Jesus reveals that this man is confident that he is willing to do anything to, eternal, uh, to receive eternal life, or excuse me, to earn eternal life. And Jesus reveals to this man, there's one thing you won't do. Jesus reveals that, this, that here's a man who comes to him confident in his love for God. Jesus reveals that this man actually loves his possessions more than God himself. This man is confident in his ability to do good. Remember the question, what must I do? He's very confident that he's willing to sacrifice, he's willing to do, he's willing to, to take on anything that Jesus might call him to do. But Jesus reveals that in loving his possessions, that while he thinks he has, has kept the law, he's actually guilty of breaking the very first commandment not having any other gods before God alone. Here's a man who comes thinking I've kept everything and who Jesus gently just points out, you haven't even kept the first. If you love your wealth more than me, then you do not love me with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Let me just further define what an idol is. It came across a, a helpful definition by Tim Keller this week in another conversation and it says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, uh, that you seek in order to give you only what God can give. It's anything that is so central and essential to your life that if you lose it, you would feel that your life is hardly worth living. Have you had something ever knock your legs right out from underneath you? 
and you just land flat on your back? Have you had something like that that you were holding on to so dear that when you lost it, you felt overwhelmed? You, you, you felt like, I don't know how I can have joy that God has taken this out of my hands. When you find something that, that takes your joy when you can no longer have it, then you have found something that is very likely an idol. It is standing in a place where only God, the creator of all things, and the only eternal God who can satisfy, is standing in a place that only God can fill. And so what this man, what Jesus is inviting this man to recognize is, until you want God like you want those possessions, you're not ready to enter the kingdom. You're simply looking to add me to your life. You're already happy, already blessed, very wealthy, very influential, impactful, impeccably dressed life. I'm the cherry on the top. But your confidence is in your law keeping. Your confidence is in yourself. And you truly believe that you are good. And folks, there's only one who is good. This is where Jesus began. It's God. So here's the big question. Why does Jesus allow this man to leave him and not become a follower? Well, it's because the law can never make us good. I want to end by just comparing Mark 10.15 and Mark 10.17. Remember I told you these are two stories and they go together? Mark crafts uh, these stories about Jesus and he's going to combine two truths. Let's look at the story uh, that we, we talked about two weeks ago. Jesus receiving the children, Mark 10, 15. I read it already. It says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. So what does Jesus say about the kingdom? He puts it in the negative. Whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child cannot enter it. How do you enter the kingdom? You receive it. You receive it. What does this man understand? In verse 10, 17, he says, Good teacher, what must I do? He's not looking to receive. He's looking to earn the kingdom. And so instead of entering the kingdom, instead of receiving the kingdom, he has rejected the kingdom. Not because Jesus has rejected him. Jesus looks at him with love. He has rejected entering the kingdom because of his love for his possessions. I want to quickly read you because I want to further. This is not a part of the story. But I would be remiss if I didn't give you some good New Testament theology that explains why keeping the law is never going to be good enough. So let me read Romans 3, 19 through 20. I'm just going to invite you to listen. And this is how we'll end this morning. After Jesus has uh, come, lived, died, and resurrected, and after he has entrusted the gospel to his disciples and to his church... They begin to continually to formulate the teachings of Jesus and help us understand the role of the Old Testament. Romans 3, 19-20 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin." How was this man using the law? He understood that he was keeping the law. The law was proof. It was evidence that he was good. Romans tells us it's exactly the opposite. 
the law actually reveals that we are sinners. It says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. It says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's look at Galatians 2, 15 to 21. In Galatians, this is Paul writing again. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. But then he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Notice again, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul goes further to say, I don't want to nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes, if, if, if the law allowed us to, a mirror and said, if you can keep these laws and if you can be this good, Paul tells us, if righteousness came through the law, Jesus died for no purpose. If you could keep the law, then Jesus didn't need to die. In Galatians, we read further in 3, 23 to 26, it says, before faith... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. How do we enter and receive the kingdom? Through faith. The moral of this story is that good people don't go to heaven. Justified people go to heaven. You know who goes to hell? Good people, bad people, evil people, everyone. There is not one person who can be justified by keeping the law. Good people don't go to heaven. Justified people do. And how do you become justified? You become justified through Jesus Christ. So here is my question to you this morning. Jesus looked at this man with love and he asked them. He says, go and sell all you have. Because he clearly saw that this was the one thing that was preventing this man from entering the kingdom. My question to you is, if Jesus were to look at you with love, what is it that you need to let go if you're going to receive Jesus' gift of eternal life? There's nothing further you have to do. Jesus has done it. He's not inviting you to do more or to be better. Jesus is inviting you to receive him. Because he has died to justify you, to make you righteousness, or to make you righteous so that you might have a relationship with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that you alone are good. And that while we may look at ourselves, and Father, there is so much in our lives that reflect your goodness and your glory. When we come to this text, we're humbled because what we see is that even in our best efforts, we don't keep the law. I pray that you would open our hearts and I pray that you would open our minds to understand this truth. That by works of the law, no man will be justified. 
but in Jesus Christ. And through faith, we might have a right standing with you. We might enter into eternal life. We might receive the kingdom. I pray that you would not allow any heart who is wrestling with these truths to leave their eternal security uncertain. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would work and bring them to a a point where they're willing to lay down what they're holding in their hands and to hold on to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.